Hello and welcome. Today we have a very special guest with us. We have Dr. Andrea Ferlan. Dr. Ferlan, thank you so much for taking some of the time out of your day and joining us to talk about pain today. Oh, thank you, Lindsay, for inviting me here. You invited me to talk about my favorite topic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. And, you know, pain is such a, a huge topic. And whenever we talk about pain on my channel, we always get you know, such a, such a huge response and your channel is devoted exclusively to, to pain and solutions for pain. And it's such a great resource. And I'm just wondering as a, as a physician, as a physiatrist, you, you do research, you, you really do so many different things. What led you to think that you should start a a channel that devoted to uh, video education about pain? Uh, it was just for my own patients, uh, Lindsay. I never imagined that uh, the, a lot of people would be really interested. I, I did this recording with a simple cell phone that I had and in this room here at home in 2019, because I needed some education for my own patients in clinic. A lot of what I do with my chronic pain clinic is talking to patients, explaining what they have, the diagnosis, what is the disease of chronic pain, what are the options for treatment, the 5M. And then I was, uh, you know, I wanted to demonstrate the exercise that I wanted them to do. And I was lying down in the bed, the examining bed, to show them this is how I want you to stretch and exercise. I said, well, this is not working because at the end of the consult, you know, they, they were tired the concentration was already you know gone and um and i was trying to throw at them a lot of information and long words and i said this is not working and then i you know you give brochures you give written material but uh, how many times would people really read what we tell them to read and um, so i said okay we'll start recording videos and ask them to watch at home and then they liked it and uh and i think a lot more people liked it <laughs> that too yeah and now now i think you're at almost 500,000 subscribers and i know that even physicians are using this other yeah. physicians are using this yeah. as a as a resource the and yeah. the reach has been quite quite incredible and i think it also speaks to just the universal problem of pain right and the problems that we have resolving this issue or even just assisting people in their pain journey. Would you agree? Yeah, because it's so common, Um, you know, things like uh, low back pain, arthritis, neuropathic pain that affects a lot of people after surgery, after a trauma, headaches, abdominal pain and neck pain and fibromyalgia. And so it affects all ages. The statistics point in Canada that there are uh, 20% is the prevalence. So one in five Canadians live with some sort of chronic pain every day. So it's a big problem. Mm-hmm, definitely. And when we, when your patients come to you, so you are a specialist. So usually they've already been through the medical system. They're not coming to you with uh, say a headache or a simple muscle injury, right? They're, they're coming to you because they have usually I would guess it's more chronic pain, but that chronic pain usually starts with some kind of acute injury. Right. And And not always, not always. (laughs) always. Yeah. Can you explain to us the differences between acute and chronic pain, how acute can become chronic and maybe some of the physiological process that happens in our, in our body. Yeah. This is really important because a lot of people don't know the difference and, uh, and the problem is a lot of people keep tra- treating chronic pain as if it was acute. So I'll try to, to explain the way I talk to my own patients. So acute pain is the, is the good pain because it is the pain that is alerting your brain that something is injured, there is a disease or something that is broken that needs to be fixed. So if you have a appendicitis, it's good to have pain because then you need to go and get medical care. If you have a fractured bone or a myocardial infarct or a burn in your skin. So that's the pain that will alert the brain that something is injured and needs to be fixed. And I use the analogy of the alarm system of a house. So if you install an alarm system in your house, you put sensors for smoke, fire, 
um, a burglar, a breaking, a flood in the basement, right? And uh, you want the alarm to make noise when there is an actual danger to your house. So this is when the pain system is working okay, normally. That's the function of the pain system, to alert of some danger. Now, imagine that the alarm system of your house is malfunctioning. And imagine that this alarm system is making noise and there is no smoke, no fire, no nothing. There's nothing wrong with your house, but it's just the alarm system is going, you know, making a lot of noise, it's going off all the time. This is chronic pain. Is when the pain system, that we are born with this pain system and to protect us from danger. But what happens is, if this pain system is malfunctioning, the person continues feeling pain. They feel pain all the time. And not only they feel pain, but most of the times when the pain system is malfunctioning, the volume of the pain is increased. So they feel more pain. The volume is extremely high. They feel this all the time. So they go crazy, right? So who can live in a house that it's making loud noise all the time? You can't even read a book in your house because it's so loud. You, you get stressed, you get anxious. And the worst thing is nobody's hearing this noise, yeah. only you. So they go, the patients with chronic pain, they go to doctors and doctors and doctors and they see thousands of professionals and they take pills and they do injections and even surgeries mm -hmm. and they can't fix the pain because they are looking in the wrong place. It's almost like a calling the fire truck every day to your house because the house, the alarm is going off and the fire trucks came and they say, the police, the ambulance, they come and say, but there's nothing wrong with their house. Are you, are you going crazy? Are you crazy? We can't hear anything, but you need to call the alarm company to fix the pain system. And that's when I come into play because I am a pain specialist. So I'm an expert in the alarm of your body. And if the alarm of your body is deregulated, is malfunctioning, we need to fix the pain system. We need to fix, regulate it again. And uh, so we, it's a, it's a total shift of, um, of the medical system because then you, you, you have to educate the patient about what is this disease that you have. It's a chronic disease. You have to live with this disease. The best that we can do is turn down the volume, mm -hmm. avoid things that trigger this pain system, and then the person has a better quality of life. Mm -hmm. And so when someone comes to you and they are in this state or they have been in this state of, of alarm for a while, and they're, like you said, they're trying these different medications or different therapies and, and nothing seems to be working. Um, generally, what do you, what do you look at first? Like I know if you go to an infectious disease doctor for an infection, they're going to test your blood and they yeah. say, Oh, well, your white blood cell count is high. So clearly there's something going on. We don't have a way to measure pain. Uh, I don't think very accurately like that, or, or do we, what do you, what do you do? Yeah, so how do we, yeah, how do we diagnose this, right? So yeah. the, the, there are some things that we can detect in the, the body of the person with chronic pain. So for example, we know that if the pain system is malfunctioning, we are going to examine their body parts and they like, let's say low back pain. So the most common is low back pain. So the person comes complaining of low back pain. So then we will examine the low back pain. We, you know, turn it you know, all the time, all the directions, and we can see some movements that cause pain. But then we, we test, you know, the reflexes and the sensations. And basically the spine is functioning well. I, I, people bring their MRIs, CT scans, X-rays, and they are fixing the idea that they, someone saw something there, like a disc bulge yeah. or a disc herniation. And I say, this has nothing to do with your pain <laughs> because your pain cannot be explained by this one disc bulge here mm -hmm. because a disc bulge or a disc herniation would cause a very specific kind of pain. And yours is not that pattern. Your pain is different, it's diffuse. Mm -hmm. It's both sides and it's above and below those levels. So the muscles play an important role too. We also find a lot of people that have chronic pain with muscle pain, muscle tension. We call this myofascial pain. And that's the kind of pain that, uh, you know, gets better with stretching, relaxation, aerobics. The problem is 
Oh, and the other thing is when we examine the patient for physical exam, we can find like sensory abnormalities. We find sometimes that those sensors in their body are hypersensitive yeah. or hyposensitive. So this is part of this malfunctioning of the pain system. The other thing also that gives us clues that this is, uh, and, and there's a name for this, that the name of this malfunctioning of the pain system is called nociplastic pain because it is a neuroplasticity of the pain system. So we call this pain nociplastic pain. So when we examine a person and we are suspecting that they have nociplastic pain, we see all those signs of anxiety, sleep problems, depression, poor concentration, because again, it's the, the brain is overloaded with that noise. I call that it's a noise in the background that doesn't let you think, doesn't let you concentrate on the things that are important to you. That's great. Um, I love that. I love that explanation. And so when, when people are in your office and they're suffering from this pain, they come to you with their own story and their own journey and their own understanding about their pain. And it's like, you're saying, um, sometimes you'll, you'll say, no, this particular thing on your MRI is, is not what's causing all of what's going yeah. on here. Right. I cannot explain um, all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I'm sure that you come across a lot of general misconceptions or misunderstandings or even education that yeah. uh, patients have received from other healthcare professionals yeah. that is sometimes yeah. unhelpful. Do you ever yeah. see a kind of a trend or, or some common things that, that yeah. come up? Yeah. yeah. So for example, if, um, if someone tells this person, let's say that this person, the pain is starting, they're starting to have this pain. And then they see a professional and this professional will look at them or look at their x-rays or MRIs and say, oh, you have a terrible arthritis of your spine. And uh, this is going to get worse. And because arthritis doesn't get better, so this is going to get worse and worse. Imagine they're planting a seed <laughs> in their yeah. mind and this seed is going to grow. And if they believe really that their spine or their knee or their neck is terrible, they're going to behave like that. They're going to believe and they're going to behave. Oh, oh, really? Yes, because I feel pain. Therefore, I must be broken. And if I'm broken, what happens is when they are, when they have this fear of pain and, and breaking their body and making the pain worse, they start reducing their levels of physical activity. They reduce their interactions with other people, having fun. And just by reducing physical activity, the pain itself will get worse because one of the best mechanisms that we have, one of the best defense that we have against chronic pain is movement. Yeah. So if they stop moving, either because they have a flare up of their pain or because they are afraid of having a flare up or because they think it's going to damage something, they are going to get into that fear avoidance behavior cycle that things will go down, 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 spiral down. And the other problem too, Lindsay, that you, you know this really well because you're a pharmacist, is physicians love to prescribe pills and pharmacists to dispense them. Yeah. And um, they will always find someone that will give them pills, injections, or even surgery to try to fix that problem. And that's terrible because you will see them later and they will still have pain, but now they have all the side effects yeah. of those pills. Yeah. And that's really, really challenging. And I love that you mentioned the, um, the option of, or the importance of movement, because yeah. when someone has pain, I think that there's a natural reaction just to stop moving, just try to stop the pain and try to figure out, you know, how can they be relieved of this? Right. Um, and yeah, they're they need to do exactly the opposite. <laughs> they need yeah. But I don't think that's the advice that they get, because I think that often if they're going to a physician, the physician might just be using medication. That's the one, the tools that they have, right? And maybe they don't have time in their consult to, to talk about these, what we call in pharmacies, non-drug measures, right? Or non-pharmaceutical non interventions, right? Um, so movement is, is one of those things. And pharmacists, we, we do dispense these medications when they're given to people, but we're often very hesitant because we know that these come with side effects, right? Yeah. And they can leave a patient more prone to even falls if it causes drowsiness yeah. or, you know, there's, there's a lot involved in, in that. Right. And I think the non-drug measures is something that, um, maybe we don't put as much emphasis on, are there other things that people need to, or could be more, um, proactive about yes. when they're dealing with pain? 
Yes, uh, the two main groups, I, I, let me just back up a little bit. I usually talk about the five M's, the five groups of interventions that people can use when they have a pain, acute pain or chronic pain. So the five M's are movement, mind-body therapies, manual therapies like self-massage, massage, modalities like heat, cold, tense machine, and the last one is medication. I, I tend to leave medications to the end because I, that's usually what people think first. They say, oh, I'm in pain, I'll take the pill. I'd say, leave this as your last resource because you may not need that pill. So movement and mind-body therapies are excellent to regulate, to fix the pain system, the one that I was talking about, nociplastic pain. So. There are three types of pain, and in my channel, I have a video that I say the three types of pain, and the three types of pain are nociceptive, neuropathic, and nociplastic. So nociceptive is that pain that you burn your skin and you feel that pain, you break a bone, you have a fracture, that's nociceptive. That's the normal acute pain, expected, the good pain. Neuropathic is if there is an injury to the nerve system that carries the information of pain, like a, if you cut a nerve like or, or carpal tunnel syndrome that you compress the nerve right here, the rest, or pain after multiple sclerosis, spinal cord injury, stroke, shingles, that's neuropathic pain. For that kind of neuropathic pain, movement and mind-body therapy are not so effective mm. actually medications is what is best the best treatment for neuropathic pain of course we can use movement to keep the person active and not to develop muscle pain on the top of the neuropathic pain and mind-body because that will help them to not stress too much the stress levels go high and then they feel more pain so if we can keep the stress levels low and managing stress it will help. But neuropathic pain, we do need medications. Now, nociplastic pain, which is that malfunctioning of the pain system, medications don't work so well. Mm. What really works well is the first two M's, movement and mind-body therapy. So I, I, I reinforce this to all of my patients, you know, if you practice, choose one mind-body therapy, one that you like. There's so many. Pick one, and pick one movement that you like. You don't need to do the exercise that I'm telling you to do. Do one that you really enjoy and you like it. If it's swimming, go swimming. If it's dancing, go dancing. If it is walking, running, Pilates, going to the gym, whatever. Whatever you like it, but do it. Then those are the patients that have seen best results for the quality of life. Those who are practicing mind-body movement and reducing the medications. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really nice when you mention do something that you like, do something that you enjoy, because we often just think, I mean, some people do like to just walk, right? But we yeah. often just say, well, I need to walk or I need to run or we try to fit ourselves into a certain category, but sometimes it's different for, for everyone. And yeah. I think that yeah. helps with the mental issue, right? Yeah. You see, you mentioned stress uh, and even sometimes we see patients who have chronic pain with depression. Yeah. Um, how does that play very into common. this whole this whole picture stress and depression anxiety is very common among this population because imagine they're living with chronic pain and um it's living in the house with the noise all the time that background noise very loud so it's very prevalent in, among my population to have sleep problems anxiety stress depression and it's also part of the syndrome of nociplastic pain because the the brain is one the brain cannot separate what is pain what is emotion because pain is an emotional experience so every time that a person feels pain automatically the emotions are activated and because pain has to be an unpleasant emotion to alert that there is a danger every time the person feels pain those centers in the brain of emotional sensations, the unpleasant emotional sensations, they're also activated. So when we see people that have depression, anxiety, one of the most important thing is tell them that, first of all, this is acceptable. This is totally, you know, validate their emotions. Um, tell them that this is, they're not going crazy. This is something that we see all the time. 
and uh, give them some education about uh, what's going on. This helps a lot just for them to understand they they are not alone. They are not, it's just not them. It's everybody who has chronic pain. And then the way we treat this really depends on the severity, depends on the other symptoms they're having. If it's really severe depression or anxiety, we do need to use some uh, medications and in addition to cognitive behavior therapy, which is a kind of psychological treatment. And in the very severe case, very, very severe, we have to admit those patients to do those treatments in the hospital. But when it's not severe, we can treat this in the community, sometimes just changing their lifestyle, eating better, having a sleep hygiene routine, um, losing, you know, some of those fears of pain and trying to be have introduce some fun in their life. Uh, stop smoking, drinking alcohol, doing physical activity, doing exercise is one of the things that we recommend even for depression, not just for the pain, but for depression. They may not even need medication if they do all of this. And if they have someone to talk to, like a counselor, a therapist, that they can um, have regular checkups, because sometimes those thoughts keep yeah. ruminating inside of the head and they're not helpful. So sometimes talking to someone, getting those thoughts outside of your head, talk to a counselor helps a lot because they see the other person will help them to analyze what they're thinking and see sometimes what they're thinking are not realistic thoughts. They're just catastrophizing. They're just ruminating on those thoughts and that's not helpful and they are losing precious times of their lives like uh, you know instead of uh, getting locked inside of your room in a dark room for days you can get out and enjoy your kids your siblings your neighbors you can do some enjoyable activities and sometimes they don't see this they all they see all they hear is the pain and they let the pain dictate what they do they let the pain tell them if they're going to have a productive day or not now, if they take charge of their life and they say, I'm going to have a productive day with pain or without pain, I'm going to enjoy this day. It's amazing. They say at the end of the day, they notice the pain less, even though they had pain. But they say, I was so focused on my activities, what I was doing, I forgot about the pain. So that's true. The less you think about the pain, the less memories of pain you're creating in your brain. So that's one of the techniques that we are learning. It's it's amazing the new research that is coming out of the the most you know reputable labs in the world. They are showing that if you spend too much time thinking, concentrating on your pain, you create neural pathway circuits in your brain that are difficult to erase. Mm. So we need to be careful because once those neuropath circuits become ingrained, it's almost like learning to drive. Once you learn to drive, you can drive automatically. <laughs> you don't even, you know, how did I get from point A to point B? I don't remember which, which route I took, but you did drive automatically in autopilot. That's because you are trained. You, you are so good at uh, driving. Mm -hmm. You don't even need to think about it, but think about when you learn to drive. When you, the first few months that you were learning to drive, you were paying attention, you know, the steering wheel, the brake, everything, and all the noises around you, you couldn't even think about something else. As those neural pathways became more uh, used, you become automatic. So, so the same thing with, with pain. Those are, every time you feel pain, you're creating a neural pathway in your brain, in the brain circuitry. So we need to erase them. It's really hard to erase memories. So we try to distract our brain and think about something else. Yeah. And I think that in our healthcare system in Canada, I'm not sure, I know you're in Ontario, so I'm not sure what it's like in Ontario, but we do have long wait lists to see probably someone like you. And so by the time a patient gets to you, they may already have some of those pathways mm -hmm. created, or I, I think there's a there's a tendency for physicians to, I think we'd already mentioned this, but prescribe very quickly. And even in our, our culture, as soon as we experience pain no. or some kind of negative physical feeling, our tendency is to 
grab a medication, right? This is, you know, problem solution, problem solution, right? And there's, there isn't necessarily the conversation surrounding things like movement or even cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, Do you think that's something that, that should be more in medical school? Is that something that is discussed very much or um, do you see that changing a little bit now? Well, it, it is interesting that you're saying this because the transition from acute to chronic pain, mm-hmm. right? Although a lot of people have chronic pain, they can't remember any acute episode. So that's fibromyalgia is usually like that. They, they, they can't remember when it started. Right. Uh, but a lot of uh, chronic pain, they know when it started. And we know too that if that acute pain is not treated properly, Mm-hmm. with you know painkillers or anti-inflammatories or ice if you let the person suffers a lot in acute pain that is also a good factor to break the pain system to cause that deregulation of the pain so we need to be careful when we yeah. say don't you know let's not let's throw all the pain pills the painkillers yeah. no that's not true because we need them to block the acute pain so then the pain system doesn't get sensitized mm-hmm. and will not develop chronic pain. What I'm talking about that the painkillers rarely help is when this acute pain has already healed, mm-hmm. there's no more evidence of acute pain, and all that we see is an osteoplastic pain, which is the pain system's malfunction. In this case, the painkillers really don't do a lot, and actually they can make the pain worse. So the trick for us is to find out when are we not treating the acute pain anymore and now we are treating the chronic pain the magic the magic number that you see in all the guidelines and in scientific literature is three months mm. but three months is a very arbitrary number it could happen earlier it could happen later and and it also doesn't mean that a person with chronic nociceptive pain cannot have an acute episode of nociceptive pain they may have so that's when it gets complicated because you know this person has fibromyalgia, for example, but now they come and it might be that their shoulder pain or the knee pain that you're having is a bad arthritis or a tendinitis or bursitis. That needs to be treated because if you don't treat that as an acute pain, it's going to sensitize the pain system even more. Mm-hmm. So we need to educate the healthcare professionals to identify those situations, to learn how to talk to the patients, listen, and examining a good physical examination is essential. There is no imaging that can replace the hands and a good physical examination, the maneuvers that we do. But it takes time. Yeah. I take approximately an hour and a half with each patient. But they come to me. The, the cases that come to me are very complex, and they have many, many year, years of history. It doesn't need to be ninety minutes for everybody. But a, a good history and a good physical examination is able to tackle all of these issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's great. Um, that's a great explanation. And I also, I want, I did want to talk about, since we are kind of touching on the subject of pain medication, um, I do have to mention the opioid crisis and uh, the pre- prescribing of opioids in Canada. And this is a huge challenge. And we know that, you know, even 10, 10, 15 years ago, there were people who were getting opioids uh, prescribed from their mm-hmm. physicians. And we know that opioids do create dependence over time. And so this is a very challenging uh, issue in pharmacy. It's a challenging mm-hmm. is- issue for physicians and for patients. Mm-hmm. And uh, this has led to uh, physicians being encouraged to not prescribe opioids or start to taper their patients off of opioids. Um, but it's very, very challenging. And I mm-hmm. think that this, you know, obviously, you know, this has to be done on a case by case basis. It has to be done very carefully. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you see or the maybe even misconceptions about appropriate opioid use versus inappropriate opioid use? I mean, I, this is a huge topic, right? Yeah, this is, yeah, th- that's so much to talk here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Um, First of all, I'd say opioids are godsend mm. because they really eliminate almost completely an acute pain. Yeah. So we're able to do, you know, procedures, medical procedures. We're able to do surgery. We're able to alleviate suffering because of opioids. Mm-hmm. So I'm not against opioids. They're godsend and it's a blessing to have them. I think, uh, 
the the problem with opioids is that people patients healthcare providers society in general put too much hope on them and put too much on on the too much hope that they would alleviate all kinds of pain all kinds of suffering they have a role very important so if a person has a kidney stone you know kidney stone is a cute nociceptive injury there's a, a there's a piece of rock trying to travel from the kidney to the bladder it's going to be painful so let you know let them use some opioids if they don't have any other risks of uh, you know getting into trouble with those opioids of course so this is not a problem after surgery with a kidney stone if they have a heart in uh, myocardial infarct the problem is when we try to give opioids to all kinds of pain they're not they're not the same neuropathic pain is different nociplastic pain is different so once a pain transforms from acute to nociplastic if you give opioids there's evidence there's a lot of scientific evidence for this what i'm going to tell you the opioid will activate some receptors that were not meant for the opioids they were meant for uh, glutamate and those receptors will be activated and now the opioid will cause more pain it's called opioid induced hyperalgesia so if the person has nociplastic pain and they start taking opioids initially they will feel some pain relief because they will initially feel good they will feel well and then they will start taking this around the clock every eight hours every 12 hours every six hours their body will become dependent which means that they need a higher dose to have the same effect and they will feel good they will say doctor don't don't modify anything i'm feeling good on this medication I'm not addicted i'm not abusing this medication i'm taking as prescribed and i feel okay but what i tell them is but look what if this medication now is perpetuating your chronic pain and every time that you stop a pill let's say you miss a dose or you skip a dose you feel so horrible that actually you are treating the withdrawals from that medication actually when you skip a dose and you feel pain all over your body that's not your original pain that's withdrawals yeah. so you're taking the opioid just to maintain your body without withdrawals now this opioid is perpetuating the mechanism of your pain and you are in a in a vicious cycle yeah. but that's when i explain to them let's try to taper we'll try to tape i usually do a very slow taper i never do forced taper the patient has to be on board with me and as we start tapering the dose slowly they may have some withdrawals therefore sometimes we need to treat their withdrawals or switch them to something else called buprenorphine mm -hmm. but then they start feeling more awake they notice that their bowels are working better that their sleep is better that they are more they they are not so sleepy during the day they are more uh, alert and they and then we continue tapering the dose and sometimes we have to pause we don't go all the way to zero but sometimes we go to zero and i hear this well i don't know why i was taking all of that medication because it i still have my pain the pain is the same or the pain is better mm. and i was having all of those side effects I'm so glad that I'm not taking them anymore. So I hear this all the time uh, with people that have especially nociplastic pain. Mm -hmm. At the same time that we are lowering the dose of the opioid, we have to invest in other strategies like the five M's, right? We invest on movement, mind-body therapies, self-massage, um, modalities like they start using a TENS machine. Actually a TENS machine, what it does, you put in your skin, but it goes to the brain and it stimulates your brain to produce your own endogenous opioids, like endorphins. So what happens is a lot of people who had been on opioids for so long, they are, their brain is almost like unable to produce their own endogenous opioids, kind of a, they abolish completely. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard for me to go, in the last steps of tapering sometimes it's really hard because their own endogenous opioids they can't produce so a lot of people will have to stay on opioids for the rest of their life but on a tiny dose 
just because their brain cannot produce their own or they start using other methods to stimulate their brain. One of them is dance. Another one is exercise. You probably heard about a runner's high, people who run, 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 and they get high. Mm -hmm. That's because when they do exercise, they stimulate their brain to produce endorphins. So we use that in our patients saying, okay, if you start moving, your body will send impulses to your brain to produce your own endogenous opioids, and then you will not need to be taking those pills. So we work those things, they complement each other a lot. And then uh, that's how we are able to do some successful tapers. Mm -hmm. And some of the challenges with with tapering, because I have seen, <clears throat> excuse me, I have seen patients who, who come and the tapering is actually a very, very difficult process mm -hmm. for them. And so I'm assuming that if, if that's what is occurring and if that's how the patient is feeling, maybe they're not using those other modalities or maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe the taper is too fast or yeah. what does a good taper look like for, for your patients? Is it, is it generally? It really, it really depends. It depends on what was the initial dose that they were too high, too low. Also depends how long they were. Yeah. I usually tell them. For each year that you were taking these opioids, we'll take one month to taper. So if you were 12 years on this medication, let's plan to taper in 12 months. Usually we can get it, we can taper sooner than that, but this is for you to have an idea how slow we go with the taper calculations and reducing the dose. And sometimes it's so hard, it's difficult. What we do is we switch to a different opioid and taper on the other one or we switch them to buprenorphine, which is a sublingual tablet that is combined with naloxone. You know that very well. I'm not going to say the brand name, mm -hmm. but um, that uh, helps them because it doesn't have a lot of withdrawals. It's safer, especially for people who are older age and take uh, other, if they need to take other medications. So we use um, uh, different strategies to help them to taper. Mm -hmm. It's so one of the things I do love about your channel as well is that you you educate people on uh, some of these options, but also some of the non-pharmacological options. So I would encourage whoever's watching this to check out Andrea's channel because she does respond. She does give us so much information on on your channel. You even have a video on opioid tapering, right, and mm -hmm. how you generally approach that. It's just an incredible resource. So to look at her channel and see. Um, see what you can learn on there. I do have a few viewer questions. Andrea, yeah. do you have a little bit of time? Yes. Can go yes. over a few things. Um, this has been so good. Uh, so yeah, we have some questions that came in. Uh, one of them is how should people explain pain to their doctor? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. With the little time that you have in that yeah. consult, right? Yeah. You want to use your time wisely. And uh, sometimes you come and you have 20 years of story to tell and you know the doctor only have 10 minutes for you. Yeah. So I have a video for that, that I teach people how to be prepared for this uh, consult. And I tell them, write this in a paper and I use the Socrates method. So, and uh, there's even a handout. I think if people go to my video, they can check the link to a handout or I can send to you and you can put the handout um, here, Lindsay, sure. in this video. But it, it talks about, um, you know, tell them about where is the pain, especially if you can do a pain diagram, like a body diagram. So then paint your areas of pain and then talk about what is the characteristics? What are the words that you use to describe this pain? Maybe the pain in the head is throbbing and the pain in the lower back is more constant. So use those words because that helps us to see is this more nociceptive, neuropathic, nociplastic. Tell if it's radiating, if the pain is only in that place or if it radiates to other parts. Tell what makes it better, what makes it worse, what did you try that makes it better and what made it worse. Maybe sometimes it's light, sometimes it's noise, sometimes it's something that you did that makes it worse or better. And tell about the intensity. We like to ask the intensity from 0 to 10. We don't have a better ruler measure to measure pain. It's the best thing that we have. So. Think about a number, zero is no pain at all, 10 is the worst pain. And I like to ask my patients, how is your pain right now? What was the average in the last seven days for me to have an idea? What was the worst in the last seven days? What was the least in the seven days, last seven days? Because I like to know the worst and the least because I will ask you, what makes your pain go to this high number? 
what makes your pain, what do you do that makes your pain from, let's say, a nine to a three? For me, when you tell me the answer to those questions, it gives me hints about is this nociceptive, is this neuropathic, is this nociplastic, and then it will guide me how I'm going to examine you in the physical examination part. So every time we are gathering that information from history, I am thinking, how am I going to examine this patient? Because I need, I, I'm, when you're telling us these stories, these characteristics of the pain, I'm making in my head a list of potential diagnoses. And then I will go to the physical exam to confirm that those diagnoses. And after I do the physical examination, if I still have doubts about what is the diagnosis, I will order some lab tests, blood tests, or imaging tests. No, that's great. And we really do need to be efficient when we're at the doctor these days. So knowing how to, how to speak and what the doctor is looking for is something that we generally don't know. Yeah. Right. So that's really, really helpful. Um, is there any evidence for the use of placebos in pain management? That's a very good question mm. because when we do research to find out if something works for pain, you always compare to a placebo, like the randomized control trials, double blind, you blind the recipients. They don't know if they're receiving the real intervention or the placebo intervention. And it's interesting, very interesting that I have never seen, Lindsay, probably tell me if I'm wrong. You probably read also so many randomized trials. Mm -hmm. I've never seen in the whole literature one published randomized trial that there was no placebo response. Am I right? That's I've never seen it. Yeah. So there's always a placebo response and the placebo response can be quite high in pain, quite mm -hmm. high. Yes. So imagine for the intervention, the new treatment that you developed, it has to be better than placebo to be approved by Health Canada or by, you know, to be commercialized. And sometimes that improvement over placebo is tiny. It's not so, yeah, it's minimal, mm -hmm. which makes us think almost everybody that we use in medicine, especially for pain, including surgery, has a huge placebo effect. Yeah. And there are some randomized trials that they told the person, you are receiving placebo. Okay, this is placebo. It's deceiving. There's nothing magical here, but they did whatever was intervention. And even the person knowing it was placebo, their pain got a lot better. So. Wow. Yeah, I think there is a role for us to learn how to use placebo because placebo actually is your mind yes. telling your brainstem to produce those endogenous opioids. That's what it is. Because how do we know this? Because if we give naloxone, which blocks opioids, you block the placebo effect. So we know that oh, placebo, yes, yeah. placebo is the brain here telling the internal pharmacy in the brainstem release a lot of endorphins, dynorphins, encephalins, which is our endogenous opioids. Yeah. So it's much more powerful and I think it's underutilized intervention. Although a lot of people say it's unethical because you're giving nothing to the person. Well, you are giving something, you're giving them suggestion and teaching them to release their own endorphins. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, whoever can figure out how to harness, harness the brain in yeah. that way in yeah. a way that we can all agree is ethical yeah. as well. I think we'll have something, a big discovery, right? I think that's, uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, I, I am the one, if I go to emergency and they say, would you like the placebo or the real drugs? Like, give me the placebo first, because I think I'm going to respond really well. If I don't respond, you can give me the real one, but give me the placebo first. I'm the same so, way. I always say, let's just let's just do something else and before before the medication. I'll try. I'll try anything. Um, a nerve pain, Doctor Furlan. Uh, you know, you had mentioned that nerve pain. Often, we do need medication to treat yeah. nerve pain, but it it seems to be one of the more more complex or challenging things to treat. And sometimes I do see patients who will try one thing and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. We try another thing. Yeah. Why is it so challenging to treat nerve pain? Yeah. I, I can say that the cases that are most challenging, it might be because there is a nociplastic component on the yeah. top of neuropathic pain. The ones that are only neuropathic pain, and I can't find anything suggestive in the physical exam of nociplastic, and the person doesn't have all the features of nociplastic pain, like the sleep abnormality, the concentration, the anxiety, depression, they respond really well to 
medications, low dose of medication. And I love amitriptyline or triptyline. Those are my first choices. Yeah. And I have patients that they say, well, this is all that I need, low doses. And they take this and it controls really well. Not addictive, doesn't cause dependency. Now, the patients that are, you try a lot and you have to go higher doses and multiple medications for neuropathic pain, I find that they usually have some other psychological problems. They're not sleeping well. They're not eating well. Mm-hmm. They have a, a big emotional component to their pain. They may have some past traumas in their life that are not resolved. And because pain is an emotional sensation, unpleasant emotional sensation, imagine if you had some emotional pain in your past and now you have physical neuropathic pain they come together and for the person it's hard for them to say what is what for them it's just pain yeah so i find that uh, the most resistant cases of neuropathic pain are either um, some anxiety sleep problem on the top of that but there are also some very uh fear of pain so it may not just be a, a trauma in your past or your childhood but it's just the anxiety related to the pain itself yeah because they are so fearful of that pain that that fear increases adrenaline cortisol which are the stress hormones and the more adrenaline and cortisol you have in your body the more you feel pain so it's a paradoxical effect because it's a paradox because usually adrenaline lowers pain Okay, in normal people that don't have nociplastic pain, if you flush them with adrenaline, stress hormones, you can abolish pain completely. But in people who have nociplastic pain, it will do a paradoxical effect. It will heighten the pain. Just to prove my point here that adrenaline is able to abolish pain, there are many, many reports in the literature of people who were under a very severe acute stress, like in the war, Mm -hmm. they had to save their life and they were injured, they were, you know, they had a trauma, they even lost a body part, like an amputation, and they didn't feel a thing. They didn't feel no no pain at all, because so much adrenaline blocks the pain. But this is in the normal, if the pain system is normal, like if that alarm system is functioning okay, right, the adrenaline will stop the pain. But if the alarm system is sensitized, you put adrenaline, and then the pain is, it's almost like putting, you know, a lot of uh, more noise in the house or making the house more echoey. Uh, it does a paradoxical effect. Mm-hmm. This is amazing. I could listen to you forever. I feel like we're, I'm learning so much here. <laughs> um, next, the next question is, why does my pain get worse when it's when there's cold weather? Or why mm-hmm. do I feel more pain in the cold? Yeah. Okay. There, there are a couple of explanations here. Some of them are more scientifically based. The other ones are just... Um, they need uh, some more exploration and investigations. So the weather change, a lot of people, especially with osteoarthritis or arthritic pain, they say that they can predict the weather change. Yeah. Um, we don't know why. We actually don't know why. There is not a lot of explanation, but it seems to be a recurrent uh, thing among arthritic patients. So it must be right. They, they must be right. They know when the pressure changes or the weather will change, but we actually don't know what's going on. Now, there is another thing, which is muscle pain. A lot of uh, people, you know, tense the muscle. So muscle pain can be superimposed on any other kind of pain. We call this myofascial pain. So and, and muscle pain can be the primary cause of pain. If you know you have a, a tense muscle, and that's the only cause of pain, it's going to hurt. Or that tense muscle may be because it's trying to protect an area of your body that is injured and needs to heal. Muscles don't like cold. Muscles tend to get tight and and, um, stressed and uh, shortened when you are exposed to cold. So that might be another um, factor why people feel they are just, uh, you know, tensing their muscles. So what they need to do it's either change their work environment. Sometimes they work in, expo- in, in environments that are exposed to cold. So either change the work environment or put more layers mm-hmm. and try to protect your muscles from that cold exposure. There are also some types of neuropathic pain that are triggered by cold. We know that trigeminal neuralgia 
uh, because the nerve is so superficial here, the trigeminal nerve is superficial here in the face, it can be triggered by tapping, by moving the mouth, eating, talking, and sometimes by cold exposure, like uh, they feel if the, cold, if, if the weather is too cold, then it, it may aggravate the trigeminal neuralgia. So there are some types of headaches that are more sensitive to the change temperature. In general, for chronic pain, we like to recommend heat, but there are some patients that they feel applying an ice pack reduces pain. Ice does two things. The first thing that ice does is reduce inflammation because it does vasoconstriction. So the arteries and veins, they will constrict and there will not be a lot of blood flow. So they will be inflammatory. But the other thing that ice does, if you leave ice for a long period of time, it's going to block the nerve sensation in that nerve. Okay. And then it's going to numb the area. Uh, so people use ice, therapeutic ice for those two purposes, anti-inflammatory and to block the pain sensation. But a lot of people with fibromyalgia, myofascial pain, neuropathic pain, they don't like exposure to cold weather. That's a very comprehensive answer. Thank you, Dr. Ferland. Uh, you mentioned uh, fibromyalgia. So I have someone who is asking about uh, exercise and fibromyalgia, and they, they're they concerned about, they want to exercise, yeah. but they're concerned about doing too much. Yeah. And how can you get into a, a more healthy um you know, way of movement or exercise with fibromyalgia. I mean, you might have a video slow. on this. Start slow and go slow. Start low and go slow. That's the don't try to yeah, don't don't stop doing it. <laughs> keep doing, keep persistent. If you have a flare-up, it's not the end of the world. You're not damaging your body just because you have more pain. But you need to start low and all kinds of exercise are important. A little bit of stretch, a little bit of strengthening, a little bit of aerobics, and don't forget the relaxation exercises. Mm. It's interesting that many years ago when I started practicing, many, many, 30 years ago when I started practicing pain medicine, we thought that it was only aerobics or cardio and stretching. That was what we were recommending to our patients. Now we know that strengthening exercise, like uh, uh, exercise to build muscles, weights, yeah. Uh, are excellent for fibromyalgia. But of course, you're going to start with uh, something like uh, maybe even this might be too much. <laughs> yeah, three pounds. Yeah. Yeah, three pounds. Attach those um, wrist weights or ankle weights and walk with them. Do some stationary weights, like uh, just your body weight, like planks, side planks but start really with low and, and then keep increasing uh, slowly. And a lot of people may need to have a coach to have someone that will guide them on how to do this. I, I recommend getting a physiotherapist or kinesiologist or an occupational therapist or chiropractor that knows fibromyalgia, someone that understands what is fibromyalgia because a lot of people don't understand and get a coach. And there are even some peer groups, peer support groups. In Canada, we have a lot of peer support groups of people who have fibromyalgia, and now they have group sessions of exercises, chair exercises, yoga, and they do this in group virtually or in person. So there's, there are so many opportunities and so many places they can go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's excellent. Uh, and what about tramadol, Tramaset? If someone is taking this is a this is a, a question from a viewer. Mm -hmm. So if someone is taking one of these medications over a long period of time, does this permanently change? The question was, does this permanently change pain receptors and your brain over a over a period of years, or can it ever go back to what it was? The answer is yes. Tramadol is also an opioid. Yeah. And um the same thing that the other opioids do, they also do. So treat tramadol the same way that it, it, it treat, you would treat any other opioid. Okay. And I have a question from a pharmacist here. Uh, what can be done if a patient has clearly developed tolerance to their opioid medication and prescribers reach a point where they will no longer increase the dose? Yeah. Yeah. There are so many situations like this because they're afraid of... Uh, you know, increase, increase in the dose because where are you, where are you going to stop, right? Yeah. yeah. So in this situation, I would recommend switching to another opioid. When we switch to a different opioid, you reduce the dose by, by default because 
there's no cross tolerance so you have to reduce the dose and uh, the person let's say you you give the equivalent of 50 percent of the new opioid and you get rid of some of that, that dependence and again uh, if that's too hard for the person if they have withdrawals when we switch then i would recommend the buprenorphine sublingual tablet or buprenorphine patch mm -hmm. because that has a and then just stay on this on the on this medication because in my experience that has been for this case of tolerance and even people developing de dependence uh, to this medication physical dependence and opioid use disorder the buprenorphine is able to block those receptors stay there and cause very very little withdrawal symptoms mm -hmm. but also doesn't cause that tolerance because of the properties of the medic that you know this probably better than i do but the properties of this molecule is that it doesn't really provoke that dependence and tolerance yes yes okay that's excellent um what can I do to reduce the bias and stigma I encounter regarding my stable and successful opioid treatment for my chronic pain? Yeah, I hear this all the time. Like uh, people with chronic pain have been stigmatized by you know the media, the society, the other healthcare professionals, especially if they're using opioids. They say, oh, you're using opioids, so it's your fault, or you're not doing enough exercise, you're not taking care of yourself, and you should stop. Well, it's not easy like that. And it's it's not their fault. You know, they it's not the doctor's fault. It's not your fault. It's, it was just the system how we knew 10, 15, 20 years ago. This is what we knew best. So if they are stable, if there is no indication at all that they have nociplastic pain, there's no signs at all that this person is a risk of any complication, then there is no reason and the dose is not too high then there is no reason why to rock the boat. Now, I find that very rare, that all of these checkbox are checked, right. okay? Because even if they are on a low dose and you do a sleep study, you're going to find sometimes that they have developed sleep apnea. Yeah. And sleep apnea is caused by opioids, central sleep apnea and obstructive sleep apnea is aggravated by opioids. And that's a very serious disease. If you have sleep apnea, and like central sleep apnea that is caused by opioids is in the brain. There is no CPAP machine that will overcome that, yeah. overcome that problem. And you may stop breathing at any time. Yeah. And imagine that if you're driving a car and you also have a problem of sleepiness behind the wheel and you cause an accident. So it's really rare to find a person who is on a stable dose of opioids and doesn't have any of those complications. Sleep apnea, immune suppression, the immunological system is not suppressed, or hypogonadism, which is, means that uh, sex hormones are low. You say, oh, I don't need my sex hormones anymore. Oh yeah, you need, because if you don't have estrogen, you develop rapidly osteoporosis. If you don't have testosterone, because it's being suppressed by the opioids, you develop muscle, you lose muscle mass, your muscles will poof, disappear, and you feel so fatigued. So unless all of those situations are under control, you're not developing any risk, and uh, no other problems, fine. But as I said, I rarely find that there's no not even one single complication. Yeah, and it's good to keep that in mind, right? To to constantly be be reassessing and seeing, yeah. you know, not only looking at the medication, right? Looking at yeah. the whole person and yeah. all of the other the other factors. I had a patient that, uh, you know, she was taking opioids. Just this has an example, and and then I examined her sensations with you know sensory exam in the skin, mm -hmm. and she was super sensitive from head to toe. She will let a little, you know, clinics when you touch the, the skin. This is how I do the test. I get a paper tissue and then I start touching here. And when I did this in her whole body, she felt this like pain. So she was super, we call this allogenia. We call this allogenia because it's a non-painful stimulus. This, this is not supposed to cause pain, but it was causing pain. So this is allogenia. She did not know. And then she said, what is this? And she said, I, I noticed that when people hug me, 
I feel pain. So I don't like anyone touching me. Even the subway, I don't like when people come close to me. I said, that's allodynia, that's hyperalgesia too, because when I did, we did the pink prick, which is now pain, and she felt a lot of pain. Yeah. I said, this is hyperalgesia, and this is being caused by your opioids. And that was an eye-opener for her. She didn't have any other complications. She was on a stable dose of opioids for many, many years. You know, no sleep apnea, not, but she had a severe hyperalgesia. And I told her the only way for us to get rid of this is reducing the opioid. I think there's a big gap, uh, education gap for other healthcare professionals to be able to uh, identify this. A lot. I'm doing most of what I'm doing now, Lindsay, is healthcare education. I, I am teaching physicians, nurses, physiotherapists. I, I run a program here in Ontario called Project Echo, which is funded by the Ministry of Health. And uh, we, we already train more than, if I'm not wrong, more than 1,500 professionals in Ontario on how to examine people, how to treat chronic pain, how to use opioids, all those kind of things. Um, Dr. Ferland, in regards to supplements, so people are very interested in supplements and sometimes they're effective, sometimes they're not. Um, have you seen any particular supplement, supplements that can be effective or supplements that could even aggravate pain? What is your experience there? Yes. What do you, what is the literature uh, reflect? Yeah, uh, my patients also ask me all of those questions. That's why I have some videos that I talk about uh, those things. I am not a big fan of prescribing supplements, period. I think you can get everything except one little thing <laughs> that I'll tell you what it is. Okay. You can get everything you need from real food. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer that if you eat well, if you cook at home, healthy meals, you don't need anything except for vitamin D. So because we live in Canada, we don't have a lot of exposure to sun and we our skin does not produce a lot of vitamin d and vitamin d is essential for the pain system for the bone health for osteoporosis for mood and uh, i recommend to my patients that if you need to take only one thing it's 1000 units vitamin d per day that's it I, that's what i i take the rest it's all you can get from real food now there are some people that they don't have a good routine or they they don't eat fish and they are not you know they don't have a, uh, or they don't like meat or they don't eat meat so those people will need to be supplemented and in terms of uh, so for chronic pain the things that are really important so first one is vitamin d and that would be for everybody who is who lives in an area that is not you don't get a lot of sun exposure or also because vitamin vitamin d you can get from fortified milk and um, milk products but some people don't drink milk anyways so the other ones would be important omega-3 that comes from fish flax seeds chia seeds oils and um the other one would be vitamin B12 that is really important for the nerve functions mm -hmm. and actually a lot of vitamin Bs, not just the B12, but many of the Bs. The other things that we have, for example, vitamin K, not too exciting. I, I would not spend too much time and energy on that. And then there are other products that um, I did some research and published some videos on turmeric has some okay. anti-inflammatory properties. And glucosamine chondroitin, I didn't find a lot of evidence for this, maybe a little bit for pain in the osteoarthritis of the knee, but again, the effects might be more placebo than other things, but there are patients who, you know, they swear that they, they get better with glucosamine chondroitin, and because it doesn't have a lot of side effects and doesn't have a lot of interaction with other, it does have, but not a lot, it's relatively safe. But I tell them, instead of spending money on these things, spend money on a, a gym membership and go to, you know, if you can pay for all these vitamins and tell me yes. that you can't pay for a gym membership, yeah. I can't believe in you. But the other thing is, um, you know, buy high quality food. Mm -hmm. Instead of spending money on these things, buy high quality food in a gym membership. 
have you seen any um, success with magnesium for muscle? I've I've heard it can be helpful yeah. for, for spasticity or anything like that. Or I I, ha I use magnesium mainly for people who have constipation due to opioids. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I don't prescribe at all. Like uh, I tell, I don't tell everybody to take magnesium, but if they have some insomnia too, some sleep yeah. problems, they may take, I, I say it's one of those safe things. Vitamin C is another one that also some people like to take, especially for people who have a uh, complex regional pain syndrome. Uh, there, there are some, there was some evidence that could prevent CRPS. So those are my go-to uh, vitamins, but again, you can get magnesium from a lot of uh, health food that yeah. you encounter in nature. Definitely, definitely. Grains, yeah, grains. Eat your brown rice. Don't use white rice. <laughs> brown rice and beans. I'm from Brazil, and um, there are main. You know what we eat is rice and beans and something else. That's very healthy, especially if you substitute white rice for brown rice. Mm -hmm. And it is delicious, especially if you make it with garlic and salt, which is what mm -hmm. they do in Brazil and a little bit of onion, right? <laughs> it's good. Well, maybe next video we can start exchanging some recipes. Yeah, we start a cooking channel. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ferland, this has been so, this has been so educational, but I know that you don't just have a YouTube channel and you don't just uh, do research and see patients. You've also found the time to write a book about pain yeah. that is going to be a huge resource. Yeah. So can you show us your book and tell us a little bit about um, what's in this book and what we have to look forward to. And there'll be a link in the video description. Yes, too, if you yes. Want it to has my picture at the back. Yes, it has QR codes to my videos. So I wrote this book. It's basically a journey of a person to conquer chronic pain. And uh, I use the analogy of a mountaineer that is climbing and conquering a mountain. And uh, this book has, it's basically a summary of all of my channel. <laughs> Like uh, I, I, I waited until I had a lot of videos on my channel and I could then put everything in a book and people have difficulty finding things in my channel. They say, where is this? Did you, do you have a video for that? So everything is in here. It's summarized. It has cases, uh, cases that I talk about, you know, the patients to illustrate those stories. It has uh, some fun graphs. It's not a boring book that is just, um, a reading book but it is like a guide it's almost like having me by your side guiding you as the doctor's guide for chronic pain and um, summarizes my 30 years of knowledge treating people doing research in chronic pain so i hope this will help a lot of people mm -hmm. and i've seen comments on your channel that you are just such a gift and your education has mm -hmm. been such a gift to people because you're creating you're giving us access to education and to resources that, you know, we wouldn't necessarily have access to, right? So um, I would encourage everyone to check out that book. I'll definitely be getting one as well. And, mm -hmm. uh, and just thank you for, for the work you're doing to, to make this education more accessible and for the time that you've taken today to answer some of our questions and, and make us more knowledgeable about the issue of, of pain and uh, so many people suffering and hopefully they'll, they'll mm -hmm. suffer a little bit less now and they'll know where to go to find thank some of things yeah, and you are, yeah thank you too for inviting me here and you are doing a great job also disseminating knowledge from pharmacists to the public a lot of people don't know what a pharmacist does and how much pharmacists also know and can contribute to our suffering and our societies thank you so much for doing that too oh of course and thank you thank you for that uh, wish you all the best and uh, we'll definitely, definitely be in touch and we'll be watching you and to see what Dr. Furlan is doing in the future as well. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.